I think probably like many of many of us that come off the land, you're, you're born with this. Maybe you want to set your own destiny, make your own choices, and um, <laughs> die your own thought a little bit um, in terms of letting your work speak for itself and being able to look back at the end of the day and see where you've been. And agriculture is an industry that can really satisfy that. G'day and welcome to episode 55 of the Humans of Agriculture podcast. I'm your host, Ollie Laleve, and this week we're doing things slightly differently. Today's episode was a bit longer than usual, so rather than cutting any gold nuggets out, what I've done is divide it into part A and part B. This next story is one of courage, perseverance, of determination and against the odds getting back up. I'd like to thank this episode's sponsor who helped make these episodes possible. LAWD, specialists in agribusiness valuations and transactions. You can find out more and view all their listings of rural properties at www.lawd.com.au. Today's guest is a captivating storyteller. Her journey has been anything but straightforward. I first met Jane at Beef Australia this year. She was part of the Advancing Beef Leaders program and shared a piece that she had written in front of the audience. Speaking about the importance of representation, she used the hat as a symbol that represents our industry and our people. Good, bad or indifferent. You can find an excerpt to that on our Facebook or Instagram page. From a young age, Jane Weir had seen through her parents what it was like to be a trailblazer. Daring to have a greater impact, they left their relatively accomplished farming operation near Roma in central Queensland and headed north where they took on the next challenge at Amelia Downs, not too far from Charters Towers. In part one and today's episode, you'll hear about Jane's early life, from a kid working the land alongside her parents, to trying to get as far away from agriculture and where she called home. Ultimately, it led her to pursuing a dream of riding horses internationally. Taking a few shortcuts, Jane returned home in 2013. She was training a young horse one afternoon when the horse fell onto her. It was the beginning of a journey and a test that would be three operations, a bone marrow transplant, and years of recovery. I hope you enjoy this episode. Uh, the moment I met Jane, I knew that I really, really wanted to get her on the podcast. I had no idea of the backstory of what it had taken for her to, to see life through the lens that she does. And as you'll hear, she's an incredible optimist. She takes on challenges head on and I can't wait for you to listen to this episode. Jane, welcome to the Humans of Agriculture podcast. Hi, Ollie, and, and thank you very much for having me on. No, it's awesome. I think hearing you speak at, at Beef was incredibly eye-opening. I think your your speech around wear the hat as part of uh, the, the ABL program really pricked the ears up of a lot of people. You you say that you're not a natural public speaker, but I think it definitely didn't come across that way. Was was it something around the symbolism of the hat that, yeah, you wanted to get off your chest at a particular point in time? Um, did, did the time just feel right at Beef and, and the platform was there to do it, I suppose? Yeah, where did the, the analogy of, of where the hat come from? Uh, oh, 
Well, it's, it's sort of a really funny one. Um, my father's a very proud Bushman, and um, I have really been struggling for a long time with uh, our ability to stand on the sidelines in all walks of life and uh, not, it, criticize mightn't be the right word but have an opinion on the things that are happening in our world and around us and um, I was lucky enough to get involved in the ABL program last year and, and started to learn a little bit about what it took to be involved and to create change in communities and uh, committees, events, organisations, industries and um, it very much occurred to me that it's much easier to spectate with a loud voice than stand on a court and play ball in terms of actually putting yourself in a position to be criticised by the crowd. And um, I think I've probably through that become a little frustrated that, that people are prepared to, to sit on the sidelines and criticise, but um, the small communities all over Australia and, and probably larger ones too are crying out for people to stand up and go, no, I do have an idea and I would like to discuss it with you um, and put it on the table. And, and and how that sort of came about is that my father had come up to visit and um, he'd flown up and when he arrived, he turned up without his hat. And it was the first time I'd seen Dad arrive in the north without without the customary cobra and I I sort of when we got home I asked him and he said oh I, I didn't want to carry it on the plane and I, I it sort of just started this idea in the back of my head and I mulled on it for the day and then I sort of came back to him and and said to him we we talked around the why and it it really marks you out if you turn up with a cooper on it it marks you out you say right I'm a I'm a bushman or I'm a farmer, or I'm involved in agriculture, or potentially the other people that you often see wearing Cooper as politicians. Uh, but it, it particularly marks you out. And the fact that Dad hadn't taken it on the plane, that it had, he'd put his farmer hat aside, if you'd like, he'd not marked himself out from the crowd. And, um, and it may have been really convenient not to carry it, but um, it made me sort of think more broadly as a community and as an industry what if we're not prepared to put our hat on and, and stand up and say, no, this is this is who I am, this, uh, I am part of this group um, and I'm prepared to be judged as such. And, and so that's probably in a really un unarticulated way uh, where the, the thoughts behind that particular speech came from. And I'd love to know, there's two things. <laughs> I want to know more about your dad. And I suppose, yeah, well, we might get to that as we go on. But can you tell me a little bit more about your community and Charters Towers and, and where your family property is? Because it wasn't always home for you, was it? No, no. I w I've been very lucky to live probably all over Australia and, and very fortunately in a number of different places around the world. Uh, we grew up on 10,000 acres of Buffalo down near Roma, um, a beautiful black soil block, ran, uh, Black Angus cattle, uh, you know, uh, nice family of four. And uh, my family got involved in what's probably now more commonly known as regenerative grazing when I was very, very young. Um, and they developed their place into a what would now be called a cell grazing system and rotated cattle and looked after pasture and focused on a lot of the 1% that in 
um, created change for their business and their industry and they I guess set goals and, and we were all very much a part of that and when I was about 12 they they had developed the block that they had as far as they envisaged and they felt that they wanted to look for outside opportunities and get out of their their area and their district and their comfort zone um, as I'm probably a bit older I understand that possibly more and so that this opportunity came up to take on 50,000 acres of basalt country north of Charter Towers. Um, so we packed up, you know, I don't know, 16 horses, even three dogs, two cats, a potty calf, uh, and moved to what to me felt like at the time the wild, wild west. Um, <laughs> it was uh, quite an undeveloped place. Uh, it was a, it's 140 k's north of Charter Towers, um, and it is wall-to-wall basalt ridges, um, very rocky country. Um, it gets hot in summer and cold in the winter. Um, and uh, when we turned up here, it, it ran about a thousand cows, um, and it had 12 boars on the entire place and about that many paddocks. And we just, uh, as a family, we came up here. My brother was at boarding school, but I, I moved north with my parents and started school of the air, which was an experience probably for all of us, not the least my mother because we didn't have a governor. They set about replicating the ideas that learned in southern Queensland on a large-scale enterprise, what we considered large-scale because it was five times the size of what we were used to. Um, in the north as pioneers, if you like, because there was really no one else in the area that was doing things like that. Um, and I look back on that now and I just gobsmacked at how brave they were to step outside the common thinking. And, and they would, you know, and they would ask, you know, people and they would talk to people in the area and got to know the country and did all the things about accumulating local knowledge and then they applied it to their system and their beliefs and, we ran single wire fence and I think in the first three years that we lived here, they put in 60k of poly pipe and put waters in and, and started rotating cattle, which was not something that was uh, commonly done up here. And and all that while, as a child, I never knew that we were doing anything that was outside the norm in agriculture. And so that was a really cool environment to grow up in, we had as kids, we had huge buy into what mom and dad were trying to achieve with grass and cattle, and uh, got to be part of the, the development of the place. And, um, but we worked, we worked very, very hard, uh, and mum and dad worked even harder still. And and it was, yeah, the north was was the wild, wild west, but it was also something I became a little bit proud of being part of, if that makes sense. Yeah, and the amount of, of time you spend laying pipe. Hey, it's Nick here, Sheep Farmer and Rabobank Regional Client Council Member. I'm passionate about supporting our local community so we can improve community wellbeing and build strong local economies. My job as a client council member is to help secure funding for regional grassroots initiatives, those that support education in ag, rural health, sustainability and help bridge the country-city divide. We've helped organisations like Boys to the Bush, funded school field days like Ag Vision and held succession planning workshops, just to name a few. 
If you have an idea to make a difference to regional Australia, go to our website at www.rabobank.com.au and nominate via our community fund. We'd love to hear from you. Our fences. It, it initially drove you away from farming, didn't it? And, and kind of going ah. through those high school years, you, you decided you'd take a different turn? 100%. I think by the time I was 16 or 17, I was um, completely obsessed with horses, as many young women are. Um, pretty sure I said something to the effect of that I'm not coming home um, ever. Had, you know, loved the idea of going mustering, but didn't particularly love the idea of going mustering with my family um, or in the rock or anywhere I couldn't gallop. And, and so when I finished school, I was lucky enough to, I moved to Sydney and started riding for a, um, a show jumping lady down there and had some wonderful experiences and, and in all of that, hooped a scholarship to go to Bond University and study finance. So um, initially, yeah, no, I headed off far, far away from the land first to Sydney and then to the Gold Coast to study and um, got involved in not just things outside agriculture but people outside agriculture. Um, and then while there were plenty of rural people at, at Bond, uh, there was a lot of international students uh, and people from all walks of life and all over Australia and the world. And in hindsight, I, I feel really lucky that I did that, that I didn't you know, go to Gatton or Brisbane or that I went somewhere where I just wasn't going to meet uh, people with the same set of experiences as me, as me. And so um, that kicked off, I guess, my trinity education. And then I um, took that and I went uh, banking. I went and worked for the NAB and uh, got in. I guess uh, got going as a as an analyst and um, did nearly twelve months, or did just over twelve months in banking, um, off the back of an accelerated degree. And at twenty one years of age, decided that an office job wasn't for me. <laughs> um, but I wasn't interested in going back to agriculture either um and so that sort of that was that was a really um it was a really interesting time in life and uh where you you find yourself you've gone and got yourself educated and you're on the road to all the things where you think you should be going and uh then you realize that maybe that's not the direction you want to head uh and it coincided with the invitation to a friend's wedding in canada um, who I'd met at university, and I thought, that'll be great, I'll do that. And I booked a one-way ticket to Canada, handed in my resignation and flew out the following month. Um, and that started me down a probably a very different path. I found a job over there riding horses, of all things, um, and, and very quickly found myself on, on a ranch in Alberta uh, where I'd been primarily employed to, to ride young horses for their show jumping and uh, what they call their hunter classes over there and and in my spare time help out with the ranching. Um, and as many of these uh, jobs in, in rural places all over the world, of course it starts like that and next thing I know I had to learn how to rope and, uh, and then I was off playing with cows again in my spare time. But with all of the, the thoughts that I had as a young person, I knew something about cattle, but actually none of the knowledge and experience that my family had. Um, or any idea about snow. Um, so that was 
that was a fairly entertaining um, two years. And and in all of that time, I, of course, met a boy and, and all the things and fell in love and decided that um, that was going to be part of my life. And, and, and I guess in all of that, um, the horse riding was probably the most common theme for me. And uh, I, I was really lucky. I got to go and compete at Spruce Meadows. And for people that are not familiar with um, equestrian, that's, that was a really cool experience. It's a um, very big competition over there and um, rub shoulders and with a few people. And this idea in the back of my mind that maybe I would want to go and ride in Europe started to form. And um, Europe is considered um, the pinnacle of, of education for riders in equestrian sports such as show jumping and dressage and three-day eventing uh, and they certainly breed a large quantity of world-class horses over there and um, so I'd done sort of I guess my time in Canada and um, I had, my parents had come over to visit and um, we'd had some conversations and, and I was engaged and, and that sort of thing and Mum and Dad indicated that I was potentially running out of time if I wanted to be interested in their agricultural business. And um, I, I can't remember rightly, Ollie, I guess how I responded to that, but it was something along the lines, I imagine, of oh, just one more year. Um, and so I promptly found myself a job in Germany uh, and moved over to the other side of the continent, but still in the Northern Hemisphere. Uh, and that, that, I guess from a little girl, that was one of those big dreams come true where you get to, um, you know, you're going to go and ride horses in Germany. And of course I got over there and discovered that I didn't ride nearly as well as what I thought I did. Um, and it was an incredibly humbling experience. Um, and one I will forever be grateful for. The Germans... You know, they, they nearly conquered the war, world twice through war and, and then they nearly did it with economics. Um, they, as a people and a culture, they're incredibly dedicated to detail and perfection in everything they do. And to get to go and train, and I imagine it, it would be the same if you went and trained in any, any field over there, their style of, concentration to, to the task that they are doing is absolute and so I guess when I look back at all the things that I learned in my time there um, the ability to be 100% present to what you're doing and in the moment every moment um, was was I guess the linchpin of things you know that so I just, when I first started over there, I just, I couldn't get it. You know, they, I went from jumping horses around medium-sized tracks to they took the stirrups off my saddle and um, made me ride without a bit in my horse's mouth because they didn't think that neither my legs were good enough nor my hands. Um, there you go. Uh, right. Yeah, no, it was it was quite the experience and um, and a, and something I really wanted. You know, I, I desperately wanted to get better at riding. I wasn't a, wasn't a great rider. I was a, you know, just a rider and... Um, we went went out one day on horses as we do and I spoke no German not a word when I went there and I think in the barn everyone spoke a little bit of English but it was no one's first language um, and I 
so I asked a lot of questions trying to get to the bottom of, you know, what piece I was missing. And um, uh, anyway, one day I went out with the lead writer and, and I said, you know, I just, I don't seem to be getting it. I'm not getting any better. And she goes, oh, you know, it's so simple. And I'm thinking, no, it's not simple. There's nothing simple about this. She's like, it's just you and the horse and nothing else. And I reckon it was another six weeks before the penny dropped that what she actually meant, if you translated into English, was concentrate on what you're doing and don't worry. Just single-mindedly focus on what's happening, you know, right here, right now underneath you um, and with your own body. And, and it was just such a game-changer for me as a person. Um, first in that, but I guess as we get maybe get through my little bit of a story how over time that particular uh, light bulb moment has really uh, been meaningful in some really important moments in my life. Yeah. Um, and I've got a question. So the, the first time I suppose your parents gave you that, not quite an ultimatum, but you, you managed to buy yourself some time when you were in Canada initially and they said kind of the, the door starting to close, you need to come home. Mm. Was it stubbornness that, that left you there or, or did you like, – how did they actually take that initially when you kind of said, yep, just give me more time? Give me more time. They, look, they were, they were pretty good about it. Um, I, I don't think it was like a stubborn resistance to coming home. I think I felt, as a lot of young people do, I felt a massive obligation to return home. Uh you know, these are these are huge family assets, and my family's been involved in agriculture for uh, seven generations. Yeah. And so, to say, sell the farm, I'm not interested, would have been to shut a door that you cannot reopen. And I wasn't prepared to do that. Um, but I don't think in my heart at that point I really wanted to return either. Um, and so I what changed? Like, so, you, so you left Australia and at that stage it was to chase the dream of horses. Was it that exposure to, to cattle and that chance that you had basically to mix two worlds of horses in the morning, agriculture in the evening that re-sparked that interest or, or what was it? I think, think you've probably articulated that quite well. Um I didn't want to be a professional rider. That was not the life that I wanted for myself. Um, but I did not want to give up the horses. Um, and I, I think probably like many of many of us that come off the land, you, you're born with this. Maybe you want to set your own destiny, make your own choices, and um, <laughs> die your own sword a little bit um, in terms of letting your work speak for itself and being able to look back at the end of the day and see where you've been. And agriculture is an industry that can really satisfy that that need. You know, if you're out fencing and, and you get to five o'clock, you can look back and, and see where you've been for the day or drafting cattle or planting field or something like that. Um, and I think the other thing is I, I, I was so young in a lot of ways, I, I didn't really know what I wanted. But I knew that it, it, some part of me knew that I didn't want the place sold, that I wasn't ready to let it go. Um, and so I I did 
did a year in Germany and then I got another phone call. Um, and that's how I did come home. Um, so I moved home at the end of 2012. Uh, my end partner came with me um, and he was in love with the idea of, of ranching, as he called it. Um, and so we we came home. Mum and Dad were living here as well um, and moved in to be part of a basically a family business. And, you know, hats off to them. I can't imagine how hard that was from their end because uh, we had all the ideas and no idea at the same time. I think you grow up in an industry and you've seen Mum and Dad do a lot of things, but you haven't had to plan them organize them or or actually do them you you might have held the wire and held the pliers um but you had someone there when you fixed the fence so to speak and um so we we moved to australia green as grass um i'd been living we've both been living in the northern hemisphere and so we went came from sort of 40 below to to a 40 degree australian summer um you know and we had to to relearn things like don't put your tools down the sun. Um, actually, just don't put them down at all. You learn um, <laughs> And wear gloves. Um, you know, and, and so we came home, that was in 2012, and, and it was probably really put on me that if I wanted to be home, wanted to be part of the business, uh, that we would need to find a way to make that pay um, because it wasn't a big enough business for two families at that point. And... Um, and that puts that puts some real pressure on on everything for everybody. And uh, we did some did some creative things to make that happen. We did quite a lot of contract mustering and and built things. And you know, Dad was just epic in the things that he would come up with. And we rolled into 2013. And um, as any anyone that in agriculture in in the early teens would know, uh, 13 up here was very very dry, and we got about half our annual rainfall and um so that put pressure on on every part of a business in a family that were already feeling the chafe of of not just not just different personalities but different cultures coming to clash and um and on the side of this mum and dad had really recognized that for me i, I still just really wanted to ride horses and and jump and that sort of thing so Dad put an arena in and uh, I had bought a few young horses and um, I think, you know, there was a there was a real catalyst moment for our whole family or I, when I think about the things that have been hugely impactful in my life and right down to I can remember the date. It was the 30th of September. It was about 5 o'clock in the afternoon and I was riding a young stallion in the arena and um, all the mares came galloping up to the fence and, and he did what probably, you know, any young colt would do. He let a big squeal and, and stood up on his hind end. And I um, immediately slid off to have a philosophical discussion with him about his attitude. <laughs> and um, and I tripped over in the sand. And then he fell on top of me. And two inches, I think, you know, if he'd fallen two inches to the left, he would have killed me. And if he'd fallen two inches to the right, he uh, he would have rolled to his feet, I would have stood up, and I wouldn't have learned a damn thing, Ollie. I would have got back on 
and we would have gone again and and but that's you know that's not what happened. He landed on my on my right leg, um, and it gave an almighty pop, and then he rolled his feet, squealed, and took off, and that was perfectly fine. My mother caught him and. After that, she came over and took my boot off and looked at my leg and said, well, there's no bone sticking out. Can you wiggle your toes? And I could. And she said, oh, all right. No worries. It'll be all right. And um, it helped me get back to the house. And, and we, look, we were pretty busy. Um, we were a bit under the pump. It was very dry. It was late in the air. And um, so I hopped around at home for three days um, with this leg that was getting I might have just increasingly fairly hard in the calf um, and, and pretty sore. And uh, so mum said, I think better go and see a physio. You might have caught the muscle or something there when that horse fell over. And of course, we channeled into the local physio and um, the poor young lady looked at it and looked at me and, and said, I'll be right back. And she came back in with the head physio and he looked at it and looked at me and listened to my story and immediately wrote out an x-ray script and said, can you just hop across the road? Because I wasn't actually on crutches at this point, and um, I'd just like you to get an X-ray of that before I touch it. And uh, four broken bones later, he suggested that potentially the hospital, not the physio, was the place for me to go. Um, and so that that was the beginning of, of what I consider my journey <laughs> in ag, Ollie, if you like, was the moment that I actually couldn't ride anymore, and. Um, so they. I got a question, Jane, around that because so it sounds like when and this might be my basic understanding of it, but when you got home, so you you mentioned before that Germany taught you a lot about just their ability to focus on tasks. Would would you say in those early days back on the farm you were still chasing two dreams, like one being during the day on the farm and then the other still with the horses? Was it was there something in the background? there around like unfinished business or, or an opportunity that you thought you could pursue? I think I think it was unfinished business and, and you're right. I I would do my farm work um, and uh, my my personal relationship at that point probably wasn't real real flash. Uh, and ride riding was an escapism but it was um, it was also part of an unfinished dream I had desperately wanted to get good enough I don't know what even good enough was for me at that point but I wanted to be good enough and um, so I was always chasing I guess five centimeters higher in the ring um, and it is I guess it probably drove everyone to distraction really in hindsight um, but I I don't know whether I thought that I wanted to jump. I used to take my horses away once a year to, to go and compete um, down south and ride and get to watch good riders ride. Um, I guess in the hope that uh, in time that I would be able to go back to doing it well um, or even possibly return to Europe. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, no, it does. It does. And, uh, yeah, I think that was what, what I was intrigued by. And so this, the accident at that stage, the the visit to hospital was only the very beginning with this leg injury. If only we had known, <laughs> in hindsight, what I, you know, 
Finally, I had known in hindsight what it took me a very long time to learn. Um, and so I guess in, in light of that, um, of that unfinished business, they, they operated on my legs for the first time in, in October 13th, on October 13th, 2013. Um, and they, they pinned my ankle and sent me home. And, um, I think I lasted about four weeks before, um, I drove my mother and my partner and everyone mental and someone saddled me a horse so that I could at least sit on a horse and, and help cut out and that sort of thing. And, um, which is completely the wrong thing to do. And, (laughs) and, and I, and I felt really sidelined, you know, I was on, on morphine for pain and it was broken in a few spots. I, um, my job in the business had been outside, um, hands-on providing physical labor. Uh, and all of a sudden the only task which I could do were office related. Um, and so it all of a sudden put me in a very different position in the business because, um, I was then working on the nuts and bolts of what made a good business. Um, and I actually, it's, it's interesting in a way that um, I found that quite interesting. It's funny and, and started to get a bit more of a feel for, for what was happening and how it was all working and, and wasn't working and, and maybe what was behind some of the pressures. And um, my leg sort of just became something in the in the early time there where oh, it'll be six weeks in a cast or eight weeks in a cast and we'll get off and off, we'll go again and I'll be back on a horse. And I, look, Ollie, I had even had dates written in diary. If I'm back on by this date, I'll make this competition and I'll qualify and I'll be ready for that, you know. Um, and uh, anyway, my first checkup appointment came and I went to see the, the physio and, I may have gone to see the doctor and they said, oh, have you been doing physio? And I sort of stared at them and, and said, oh, no, am I supposed to have been? And they're like, yes, every week. And my leg had atrophied um, to an alarming rate. It was the same width as my arm. And Ollie, it was bent. And I think that was probably the hard, that was so hard for me to look at, I'd sort of ignored it, but it was my father probably that pointed it out. And... Um, so we went to see a went to see a, a doctor and he or a surgeon. He looked at it and looked at the X-rays and, and said, "Oh, look, you know the, the pins that you've got are in not you know not doing the job that they need, and we're actually going to have to operate on this again and have another go." And that was a pretty devastating blow to someone that was already feeling pretty low. Um, my personal life was um, probably at, at nearly the worst of it, and um, Mum and dad were trying to support me through that, but it's really hard to support someone when you just don't know how to help them. Um, I couldn't carry a cup of coffee across the kitchen in the mornings. Um, so I, I couldn't do the laundry. I couldn't sweep the floor. I could do the office work. I couldn't help outside. So I was essentially, um, in a lot of ways, a, a fairly handy burden to everybody because we had to make a plan around my lack of mobility. And uh, so back to the physio and... Uh, and then sort of the message that came across was we need to get you walking on this leg so that it's strong enough for us to do a second operation. So that was, I'm a goal orientated person and, and so we got a goal and the goal was to walk and um, so I had an amazing physio in Seattle by the name of Paul Parker and he 
started to teach me to walk again because after 14, 13, 14 weeks without having put this foot on the ground, my my brain had decided that I couldn't use it and, and I, I really did have to learn to walk again and it was quite a humbling experience. Um, it, it, from the outside, it, it seems really simple. You tell your brain to put your foot on the ground and away you go, but it, I just couldn't. Um, and so we worked through that and there was a bit of pain involved and, and different things and I rocked up in February for my pre-op x-rays and they took them and they took a very long time and then eventually the doctor came in and he said, I'm very sorry, we can't operate this week. Why not? And um, he said, you've, you've got osteoporosis in your leg and you need a bone marrow transplant. It's, it's not healing. And um, I crutched back to the car after that, Ollie, and I sat and cried my eyes out for I reckon for an hour um, because I didn't know if I could go through another 14 weeks I've been on my leg and in, in hindsight um, you know there's people that go through the rest of their life in a wheelchair with a good attitude so 14 weeks on crutches probably not that hard but at the time it's, uh... but at the time I didn't think that I could be disabled as I saw it for another 14 weeks because it had been, and how long had it been by this stage? It was eight, nine months? Not, it hadn't been eight or nine months at that point. Yeah. It had been, uh, I think, five. Okay. Um, you know, so we we got to end of February, as I mentioned, being quite dry in 13, and, and then in 14, we got eight inches of rain for the year. So it had gone from being quite dry to very dry. So in the middle of all this, we're madly destocking cattle and re rejigging our business and um, finding alternate ways, you know, to to make an income. I started doing a bit of off-farm work, um, doing pasture budgeting for the local land care group. And, um, yeah, we sort of, we were trying as family, but it was a really trying time. And, and then, you know, you sit down and say, well, sorry, guys, but I'm going to be back on endonomorphine and completely out of commission for another 14 weeks. And, and all through this... Um, still trying to be involved in the business and um, and probably getting to the later stage of acknowledging that my personal relationship needed to come to an end. Um, and I think that's probably, as all things do, they normally all happen at once and, and sort of in my case it, it did. I'd got some mobility back and uh, went, went through and um, got myself to the point where I could walk with a walking stick instead of crutches. Um, with a fairly mean limp uh, and I just made sure that I wore jeans because if you had jeans on you couldn't tell that one leg was half the size of the other and um, and was able to sit on a horse with weights in one stirrup and so that was I suppose probably good enough for me at the time and um, away we went and um, we rolled and um, we rolled into 2015 and I found myself at Amelia Downs um, walking with a walking stick. I was single at the age of 20, I suppose 27. And my partner and I decided to separate and he'd moved back to Canada and um, and just sort of starting to put the pieces back together of who I was as a person and what I was capable of. And, um, and mum and dad at that point, I guess, having stepped through all these this traumatic experiences with me um, to 
decided that they would take a step back and um, only live in Amelia part-time. And I I just, you know, I, I think of all the different pieces that went into to them coming to that decision. And, um, and I guess this is where Dad comes in with his hat, I suppose, because... Um, I can remember he came over one morning and I was sitting on the steps. I was going to a preg testing school and um, and I had just I had finally pulled the pin on my relationship and he sat down on the steps and I, I, I delivered this news, you know, because I, I come from a family where you do things in pairs and, and quite a traditional family and, and I've just told my dad that um, instead of two employees, he's now got one. And um, he said, well, what are you going to do now? And I said, oh, dad, I'm going to run the place. And full credit where credit's due. His eyebrows nearly went through his hairline, but he didn't say a thing. He just sat there and he nodded and he thought about it for a while, as he does. And then he said to me, oh, he said, righto, if that's what you want to do, but we'll back you. And to get that kind of support when you've put people through hell, I cannot even tell you what that felt like. To know that you've always got people in your corner. And did you at the time, like, were you, was it an off-the-cuff comment and was it more just that you just wanted to be busy and get back into it? Or was that, like, a very pivotal and turning point where it was, now I no. kind of know where I where No, I that, was, that was it for me. Hey, I, when I, I'd come to that point where I realised of all the things in my life, that were important to me and who I was as a person, that this place and uh, the country and the land and the people here, that was the thing that had stuck by me. That, um, you know, if I had to give it all up and keep one thing, it was going to be my connection to the land. That that's who I wanted to be when, when people thought of my name they thought of my name in, in connection to um, having having a legacy in that in ad, and um, I don't know preserving 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 what we had as a family for the next person or the next generation to leave it better than what what we found it, and and I decided I wanted to be part of that story, it, you know, and it mightn't have been what was done or what was normal, or it might mightn't have going to be the easiest path but it was the one that I wanted Wow it's an absolutely incredible story that Jane shares and I think I might have cut it off at probably the best part it really takes a few turns and you get insight into who Jane really is as a person what's driving her and what impact she wants to have so Friday morning 5am part 2 will be up it'll be there for you We'd love to know what you think of this episode. As always, you can reach out to us at Humans of Agriculture with an underscore on Instagram or just send us a voice message from inside your favourite podcast app. Thanks, guys. Chat to you on Friday.